0: Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we'll be talking with leading financial expert, accomplished author, speaker, and entertainment industry senior executive, Lynn Richardson. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Today, we'll sit down with Lynn Richardson, who will give applicable financial advice and insight to listeners. Let's get started.
1: Good evening, Waymaker community. Uh, I'm Lewis Carr, the founder, and I have the privilege today of speaking with financial expert, wizard, consulting, my friend, Lynn Richardson. Welcome, Lynn, to the Waymaker podcast.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Lewis, for having me here. Thank you for all that you are doing uh, for our community and for always, always thinking of another way to connect, to elevate, and to uplift. It is an honor to be here.
1: It is an honor to have you, Lynn. Uh, you know, what you do uh, is so important to our community at large. And as Waymaker, we are trying to always educate motivate and inspire people to live their best life. And let's just be honest, to do that, we need good finances, Mm -hmm. right? So we ask our audience to sort of send in questions that is a burning concern to them. And we wanna be able to respond with advice and consulting to help them be better at their finances in every form. So a lot of our questions today, Lynn, are about some of the basic fundamentals that you teach and you guide people with. So I'm gonna jump right in and really just start firing the questions at you. You can take your time to answer, uh, but I think we've got some amazing questions, especially during this particular economy and time in our country. So when do you know that it's time that you need to start saving money?
2: Wow, great question. Um, I I think in order to answer any of these questions, I have to share a little bit about my background because I think when people understand where I came from, they'll understand where I'm trying to go and where we all uh, hopefully are trying to get together. I was born and raised in Chicago Yes, yes. I was born and raised in Chicago. My grandmother was 75 years old, cleaning homes for wealthy people, putting me through college. I grew up on the southwest side, so I got a little bit of west, a little bit of south, and uh, we lived in the projects. I knew we were not rich, uh, but I didn't feel poor. I never remember uh, being hungry. If I needed money for something, grandma would say, go in the room, look on the shelf, or behind a pocketbook, inside a zipper, wrapped up in a piece of paper towel, is $20. She'd tell me that all the time. Um, she taught me to go to school, get a good education, get a good job, go to church on Sunday, wear clean underwear in case you get hit by a bus. All the things that big mamas teach their children, she taught me. But when I got off to college, I didn't know a lot about money in terms of managing it, growing it. And so I did what a lot of people do. I went the first week of school, uh, there was a credit card room. They had maybe 30, 40 tables and you were supposed to go and pick one credit card. Well, I've got one of each and uh, I didn't have any money to pay anybody. I was at Northwestern University on full scholarship. So when the creditors will call and say, Lynn, can you borrow the money? I'd say, can I borrow it from you? I had all kind of funny answers until I got out into the real world. My credit was jacked up. My furniture was from rent center And so here I am being introduced to my adult life basically in financial ruin fast forward i become successful i'm married three children i'm a radio show host i helped the lady with four bankruptcies and two foreclosures overcome her credit issues she got into a house with a low interest rate low down payment i became very well known um, and i was making more money but i was living a lie Lewis. i was living check to monday you see check to check is a blessing that means you get paid on friday and by the next payday you're broke But check to Monday is an entirely different game. You get paid on Friday, you kick it on the weekend, you pay on your past due bills. And by Monday, you're broke. And I was living that lifestyle, making 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, $80,000 a month. Not a year, a month. So I spend my life helping people understand this because no matter how much money I made, I always found a way to be broke. So I spend my life helping people, helping people understand that more money doesn't solve a money problem. If it did, millionaires wouldn't go bankrupt. If more money could solve a money problem, you'd never have a bankrupt millionaire. You'd never have a bankrupt billionaire. So to answer your question, when is the time? The time is now. The time was yesterday. You know, I, we say we can't live life without certain things. Well, Zig Ziglar says money is like oxygen. You gotta have it. Um, we need it for basic expenses. We need it to elevate. We need it to socialize. We need it to take care of our families and our communities. And since we have everything else, and I'm specifically talking about and our culture, anything that, we, that can be done, we do it better. We are entertainers. We are actors. We are in television film. We go to the boom. We are presidents. We run countries. But we have not yet mastered the money game. And so I say that the time is now. I say that if you if you do not have enough money to keep making money without you working for it, <laughs> then the time is now. And so I share this story and I share my background and I share my testimony because a part of that is us being comfortable enough, enough to have the conversation and to admit it. And the truth is there should never be any shame around money. I didn't talk to people about my money problems because I was ashamed. And I think our culture has told us that we come from a history of not having. So when we get the opportunity to have, we have to show the world we got it. And unfortunately, we show the world we have it with things that appreciate, that do not appreciate in value, but that look good. And so we look good on the outside with furniture, jewelry, and clothing but on the inside, we have not accumulated true wealth or the wealth mindset. So there's no so, shape, <laughs> yeah. So how do we get started? How, how, how do, do people we get,
1: start- get started uh, saving? We, we know you, you, you've got to sort of evolve to that decision, but how do you get started? How much compared to whatever? So is, is there a particular formula?
2: Yes. Uh, The formula that I started living by when I was living check to Monday, (laughs) and mind you, this was uh, after having a degree in economics, business, and finance, and I was a math major. So I was violating every rule that I had learned in a textbook, but it comes down to what we do practically. I say the first 10% of every dollar you get, you tie. And uh, I tied to my church. I love the Lord. Some people don't believe in the Lord or they don't want to tithe to a church. Well, I say give. Uh, You are such an example, Lewis, of how good givers are great getters. And I started tithing when I was broke. Let's be clear. My big fat corporate paycheck stopped up there, but my bills kept going all the way down to the bottom of the page. So I started tithing because I realized I was broke whether I tithed or not. It wasn't like if I kept the tithing money, I was straight. I was broke either way. So I started tithing so at least I could have God on my broke side. Then the next 10%, you save. And you don't just save for a rainy day. Grandma B taught me to save for a rainy day or save if something broke down. But you also want to save for a come up. And a come up is what we've seen in this past pandemic. A come up is what happened after the recession of 2008. A come up is what happens after any setback. You see, when stock prices drop, when real estate prices go down. When any commodity or thing of value decreases, then those with a a wealthy mindset, they'll go buy a thousand shares of stock that used to be $20 a share. Now it's a dollar a share. And so when that stock price goes up, you've had money put to the side to invest because you want to put the money to the side, that 10%. So it's not money that you have to worry about. You can't grow with money that you have to pay your bills with. So the first 10% you tie, the next 10% you save, 30% is cash or on a separate debit card for your incidentals, like groceries, gas, hair, nails, going to Starbucks, going to the club. And the remaining 50% stays in your checking account for your bills. And by dividing every your paycheck up, no matter what money you get, if you go do a DJ gig, if you have a check from a job, if you do, if you babysit, if you drive for Uber, whatever it is that you're doing, if every time you get paid, you divide it that way, I think you can start to find some order.
1: So Lynn, is that 10%, does it vary whether you're in your 20s or whether you make 50000 or whether you make 25000 is there sort of some variance in the amounts or the age group that is trying to start saving, or is it just
2: 10%? So I, I think for beginners, so I, I put, wouldn't necessarily put it in an age category. I would put it in a beginner versus intermediate versus, you know, maybe advanced or someone who's sophisticated or savvy with their dollars. So I'm finding that, you know, folks are in their 50s, just beginning. Folks are in their 50s and 60s with no retirement, no pension. Um, never owned a home, never understood how to invest. So I put us all together, no matter what age you are in your physical age, um, if we've not learned how to build wealth, then we are all in financial kindergarten. So if we're in financial kindergarten, start with the 10, 10, 30, 50. If you've paid off your debt, then perhaps you want to save 20%. Um, If you are debt-free, mortgage-free, you know, there are times where I'm pretty consistent with investing 50% of my income. So my goal in tithing is to be a reverse tither. I wanna give away 90% and live off 10%. So depending on where you are on this spectrum, you be, you can begin to adjust those numbers. But for people who are starting off, for those who are just saying, I wanna start somewhere and I wanna to commit to something, I think 10% is a great place to begin.
1: And when do you go to the next step to start investing. So you start off saving, then you get an amount. When do you take that next step to investing?
2: Excellent question. Thank you so much for asking it. So once you've kind of gotten things stabilized, you're saving and you have three months of living expenses as an emergency fund. So that's what many of the experts are saying, that's what most of us have said for the past however many decades. Well, I'm gonna throw in because we didn't have a pandemic. <laughs> we didn't have government furloughs. You know, anytime the government is shutting down, you can't get a check. You know, that was the whole big thing. You're supposed to be able to get a good government job. So in the light, in light of what we've experienced with the pandemic, in light of there really is no safe industry, and in light of this fact, uh, you must spend less money. You must get more money um, because one stream of income is hazardous to your wealth. I'm going to encourage us to move further along towards six months of living expenses. If You have six months of living expenses saved as an emergency fund and you've paid off your credit card debt. Why do I say that? Because of this one simple principle. Money will work harder for you than you can ever work for it. Now, Lewis, I know how hard you work. Money can work harder than that. You know how hard I work. I'm thinking about the hard work that I do. Money says, if you respect me, if you honor me, if you put me in my rightful place, then I will work harder for you than you can work for me. Because when you pay credit card debt, there's a middleman between you and your wealth, and it's called interest. So what's happening, the creditor is now earning the interest that you should earn. So once you've paid off your credit card debt, minimally, I'm going to put student loans and a mortgage to the side because I think those are longer term. And for some people, it might take them 10, 20, 30 years. Once you've got six months of living expenses saved and you've paid off your credit card debt, now you want to take that extra money that you were throwing to credit cards and other things now you want to take that money and start to invest. And if you can invest, save 10% and invest another 10% into your 401k or your mutual fund, and we make it up to that question a little bit further down the line, um, then you are now on the path to allowing your money to work harder for you and help you build long-term wealth.
1: Are you considering, is, is home ownership part of that investment plan or is that a different sort of bucket? How do you look at home ownership?
2: So home ownership falls into what I call one of the stair steps to wealth. Uh, the first stair step is to spend less money. We talked about that, live by the 10, 10, 30, 50. If you spend more money than you make, it's a mathematical failure. The second bucket bucket is to get more money. One stream of income is hazardous to your wealth. We wanna have multiple streams of income. Multiple streams of income are developed a couple ways starting a home-based business, uh, developing passive income through investments. And yes, real estate can be one of those investments. Um, The very first real estate investment uh, that one should consider is to own where you live. If you spend $2,000 a month on rent, you just spend $2,000 a month on rent. But if you take that same $2,000 and put it into a mortgage, the first thing that's gonna happen is you're gonna get a significant portion of that payment Back as a tax refund because mortgage interest, mortgage real estate, mortgage homeowners insurance is all a tax deductible expense. At the same time, you're paying into that property and it's appreciating in value. If you take it a step further, like I advise, especially some of my millennials, is if you go and get a two unit, you live in one, rent the other, the rent on the second unit now pays the mortgage, you're living rent free, So the $2,000 a month that you would have been spending on rent, you can now take that invest and invest, and you're really now accelerating your long-term cash and investment uh, cash flow. So yes, real estate can play into that. If you have not acquired real estate and you've got additional cash flow, then an additional 10 to 15, and for some 20% of their income, like I said, I'm investing in many cases, 50% of my um, additional income into investments because while you're working, you need a paycheck. But when you retire, you need a play check. That money needs to be working for you so that you can uh, live out your retirement, as you see fit. As you see fit.
1: So, Lynn, here's a very interesting question mm-hmm. uh, that came came about. Uh, and today is my 35th wedding anniversary, so I really had to chuckle when I saw this question. Mm -hmm. It says, what are the questions you should ask when you're considering getting married? (laughs) I know you got a good answer for it because I know you.
2: (laughs) Let me tell you. So, you know, I wrote a book about that too, your man and your money, how to get them and how to keep them. And uh, let me just start here. First of all, I'm going to say something to all the women out there. You know, my grandmother taught me old-school traditions, and one of them was, you know, was yours, was his is yours, and was yours as yours. And, you know, I, we kind of- I caught that, man. I caught that, okay. Yeah, was his is yours, and was yours is yours, and keep something to the side. But as I grew up, for one, I re- realized, first of all, my grandmother was my best friend, rest in peace, but she hadn't had a man for like 50-some years. So I was like, I don't know how much of <laughs> that advice I'm going to take, Okay. Um, And then I thought, do I really want to set that as a precedent so that I'm hiding or I've got something on the side and then he's got something on the side? So the first question that I would ask uh, if you're in a relationship, getting married, significant other is, you know, what do you feel? What are your thoughts? What are your beliefs about how we should uh, engage with money? Like literally, do you keep your check? I keep my check. Uh, how did, and, and a lot of these views are either based on what we saw uh, that we appreciated growing up or what we saw in fear growing up. So, if you saw a single parent who didn't have much and had to struggle and was the victim of some kind of money issue in a relationship, then that may make you overprotective or it may make you you know, uh, wiser. So I think the first thing is to have the conversation literally about how do you see us being able to flow together uh, in this relationship. The second thing is, what are your thoughts about credit? What is your credit score? Um, what are you doing to improve your credit score if it's not good? What are your thoughts about home ownership and owning real estate? What are your thoughts, thoughts about building a legacy? So people wanna earn money, but do you wanna build a legacy? Do you wanna build something that we can bequeath to our children, to our children's children? Do you wanna build generational wealth? Or do you wanna just have enough money to kick it? Do you wanna drive a nice car? Do you wanna wear nice clothing? What's important to you? What does money do for you? I think this is an ongoing conversation that we have consistently over time. I've been married for 26 years. When my husband and I got to, got together, neither one of us had anything. So we grinded and we grew together. But in this day and age, sometimes you're in a relationship and you've built your own thing, he's built his own thing. Do you want a prenuptial agreement? I'm in favor of them when it makes sense. So there are a myriad of questions to, to ask The key here is to continue to communicate and to not make any assumptions because I think it's when we make assumptions and the expectation of those assumptions aren't met, that's when we have relationship failure and money is the number one reason for divorce.
1: So I'm gonna stay there just a little bit longer because you, you ended with that money is the number one reason for divorce. What are the things that one should consider in getting married about the finances? What are those sort of sort of non-negotiable sort of things? Uh, I did a podcast last week about there are some non-negotiable things in a marriage mm-hmm. and that finance is important. What are some of those key decisions as you have consulted both in marriages and in finances that you find that these are sort of the deal breakers? And if you can avoid it, stay away from.
2: So there's something called financial infidelity. And it is no different. That's a good one.
1: I never heard of that. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, financial infidelity is when you have a financial relationship with something or someone outside of your marriage. And that financial relationship can be with uh, another human being that you're spending money on that the other partner doesn't know about. It can be a gambling addiction. It can be a spending addiction addiction. It can be a sex addiction. It can be so many other things. What what I think people don't realize is, you know, your attention can be taken away, not just by another person, but by another habit, a drug, an activity. And so financial infidelity is important to address. And how do you address financial infidelity? You address it like you address any other kind of infidelity. So the non-negotiables, For me, and and this is this was my list. And I went to a prestigious university, and I pledged a prestigious uh, sorority. And um, you know, back and even now today, there was a criteria uh, um, in the circle. If you were going to date someone, what school did they go to? Uh, Because it wasn't just if they went to school; it was which one. So that was on the list for many people. What kind of car do they drive? Uh, what If they are working for a law firm, which one is it? So it wasn't enough to just be a lawyer, Well, which firm do they work for? So there was all these criteria. And so my criteria, my nine negotiables were this. Does he love God? Does he love his mama? Is he hardworking? Does he love me? And is he trustworthy? For me, those five non-negotiables apply to finances. It applies to, am I going to be in business with you? Am I going to be in a relationship with you? Am I? Go- it just speaks to integrity. You know, Lewis, one of the reasons why you've been in business so long, I mean, I see you in your personal life, your business life. You're my best friend's uncle, and you're the same Lewis who shows up everywhere. So, what does that look like? And so those are the questions that I'm going to ask. If, if somebody will steal, you know, grandma and them said, if, they'll, if they will lie, they'll steal. If they steal, they'll kill. So it comes down to what are their basic principles? Because those basic foundational principles are then going to apply to money. Now, more practically, what are some of the non-negotiables? Some of the non-negotiables are, you know, we you, we can't have another account over there that nobody knows about. If you think that, You should have another account that nobody knows about. Now, should you have another account? I believe couples should. You should have a joint account for your joint expenses, but what if one of the partners isn't working? How do you deal with that? Are you going to nickel and dime? Well, i put in $2. You have to put in $1.67. I think there has to be some flexibility. There should be a joint account, and then there should be separate accounts, but we should know about those separate accounts, okay? Doesn't mean I want to see what's in there, but... It shouldn't be something that's in hiding. And I think that's for the women, my sisters, and for the men, my brothers. Um, I think we should have common financial goals. Do you wanna spend all your money on the latest pair of tennis shoes? Or are we going to take our extra dollars and put it into retirement or into real estate or into the stock market? So if you have a desire to build long-term wealth, and your partner wants to look good, that may be a non-negotiable for you, or that may be a matter uh, that needs to be discussed over time. So I think we just need to be really clear about what we want in a relationship. And one of the things that I always say to men and to women, because they, you know, it's not one side or the other. I've seen men who want to spend like crazy and the wife is trying to pull them in, I've seen women in a lot of cases who want to spend like crazy. And the husband is like, babe, you know, I want a life for us. What a couple needs to ask of each other. What is it that I want for you? What is it do I want to see for you in retirement when you're 70, when you're 80? These are the reasons why I want us to cut back on spending now, because I want to be able to take care of you later. When you can have the conversation in that way, from a futuristic perspective, I want to love, protect, and provide for you. Then you can, in many cases, get different behaviors today.
1: So let's ask some of the fundamentals. Term insurance versus whole life of universal insurance.
2: Excellent question. Uh, first of all, insurance is a requirement. I say when you are above Uh, having food on the table and a roof over your head, the very next thing you need to focus on is life insurance. When I was on food stamps, Lewis, I had life insurance. I didn't know if I was going, you know, grind enough to get to my next level. And I was on food stamps in this century. After the recession of 2008, everything flopped. It flopped for me too. I quit my corporate job to pursue my entrepreneurial endeavors and 401k ran out and so on and so forth. So I went and got back a little bit of the money I had put in through food stamps but I had life insurance because here's the deal. I was keenly aware that if I did not wake up the next day, I didn't want my dreams to die too. So I had enough life insurance to provide for my children who were minors, my parents who depended on me, they didn't have a financial legacy, my grandmother who raised me, my husband, his parents and so on and so forth. So in order to accomplish that goal, I chose term insurance because I was able to get a lot of insurance at an inexpensive rate. Over time, however, I encourage people to take a look at their goals and then determine if a whole life policy with a built-in saving mechanism, and in many cases, a built-in appreciation mechanism, there are whole life policies that also operate like the stock market. You can take a $1 million policy, and if it does well, the payout could be $2 million. So these are individual decisions that require a diagnosis. What I say to people all the time is this. If somebody tells you, hey, everybody sign up for this, you should run, because it's like calling the doctor and wanting a prescription. He doesn't know if you have a cold, a bronchitis, pneumonia, or COVID. He just gives you a prescription, You should run. So everyone should have that conversation with their financial professional, allow them to gather uh, the information that's necessary and issue a proper diagnosis and a proper prescription for your individual situation. But term life insurance in the beginning, when you have a little bit of resources to get the most coverage, and then as you go on, determine when and if you need to move over to whole life which will be permanent insurance at a higher cost.
1: Lease versus buy car.
2: Lease versus buy a car. Wow. Okay, so you're asking this question of someone who still owns a 2005 Mercedes. <laughs> it only has 100,000 miles. Why should I get rid of it? Every time I think about going to get the Cadillac that I want, I can't bring my mind to do it. So I literally practice what I preach, everybody. So I'm still driving this 2005 Mercedes. It rides when I bought it, when I got it in 2010, it was a 2005. It was identical to the 2010, uh, except the price was $30,000 cheaper and I had more equity. So what I encourage and what many financial experts encourage is to go and find a pre-driven vehicle that is certified, and still has a warranty that has already had some of the uh, over appreciation knocked out of it. Try to purchase a car with equity. So if you want the Cadillac, if you want the Lexus, if you want the Mercedes, shop online. True story. The first car we bought for my oldest daughter, she was disobedient, crashed it in a couple of months. Guess what? I got a check because we bought the car with equity. It was pre-driven, it was certified, it had equity. And so when the insurance company paid it off, instead of us owing money, which is what happens in most cases, we got a check. However, there is a case for leasing. So if you're gonna buy, buy pre-driven, so you can have some equity and not have to spend as much money. If you're gonna lease and you have a home-based business and you can write the lease off, because you may be in the type of business that requires a newer vehicle, a safer vehicle, or what have you, as long as you can write it off on your taxes in your home-based business, then leasing may also be an option for you.
1: But Next only, question:
2: only if it's for business.
1: Mm-hmm. Explain cryptocurrency to us and should we get involved?
2: Okay. So, uh, Lewis, you know, this is that part of me where, you know, I don't go with the whole flow all the time. Uh, First of all, let's deal with the word crypt. When I was growing up, we used to watch Tales of the Crypt. That was a dark, uh, scary situation. The word crypt, literally means an underground dungeon for burial. So I don't look at my money in that kind of terminology, and, and I'm going to say this: words mean something. You know, when everybody got all bent out of shape about the Robin Hood investors and the short squeeze, and they came and the the wealthy investors lost all this money, Robin Hood means we're going to take from the rich and give to the poor. That's what it means. <laughs> That's what the myth is. So who's surprised about that? So for me, the whole crypto thing just has not resonated well with me yet. However, it doesn't mean that I'm oblivious and ignorant to it as a potential investment opportunity. So I am still researching. uh, I am still observing. uh, I am still doing my due diligence, um, but I am not yet in a position as both a former registered investment advisor and a financial coach to people all over the globe with a fiduciary responsibility to be able to deliver them the truth and back it up, I'm not in a position yet to say anything positive or negative about cryptocurrency, except that the name sounds scary to me.
1: Okay. Uh, Final question, Lynn. Stock market is at all-time highs. Is now the time to get in or should you wait till it has a hiccup? Now, or a cough.
2: let me say this any anytime that you can get into the stock market is a good time especially if you are a long-term investor uh, one of my uh, most uh, no, one of the most notable financial advisors out there were you know hedge fund managers Whitney Tilson and he bought Amazon and a bunch of those stocks when they were four or five dollars a share. And he's one of the uh, industry's most preeminent uh, advisors. You know, He used to go on 2020 back in the day and so on and so forth. And he says, the most surefire way to get poor fast is to try to get rich fast. So the stock market is not a get rich quick strategy. It is a long-term strategy. And because it is a long-term strategy, Anytime is the best time to get in. Now, if you missed you know Zoom and Shopify and all the stay-at-home stocks that went up after the pandemic, it's okay. Pay attention, stay educated and start small. Start with a mutual fund. I still say mutual funds or your 401k are the first and best place to start investing in the stock market. Why? Because you are diversifying your risk. You're not investing in one stock. You're investing in a group of stocks. If you're gonna invest in mutual funds, then you wanna have four different types of funds. You wanna have a large cap fund that has outperformed the S&P 500, a mid cap fund that has outperformed the S&P 500, a small cap fund that has outperformed the S&P 500 and an international fund. And your international fund should include some U.S. funds. Okay, so if you pick four, and how do you know if they've outperformed the S&P 500? Go to your online brokerage account, whether it be Fidelity or E-Trade or TD Ameritrade, look up that tickler for that mutual fund and do a comparison and compare it to the S&P 500. And if your fund, if the tickler, if the line is above the S&P line, it might be a good go. And you wanna look at it for the past 10 years. If it's below, then I would suggest that you toss that one. And that's the same thing that you do if you're trying to choose funds in your 401 k The other option is an ETF. So a mutual fund has fees and it's managed by a professional fund manager An ETF has less fees, but it's a similar concept. When you purchase a share in an ETF, you're not purchasing one stock, you're purchasing a basket of stocks. So I say, get in now, get in over time and watch your money grow. And your goal is to outperform the S&P 500, which over time does about 8%. So if your investments can do 9%, 10%, 12% over time, you're in a good game.
1: Well, Lynn, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us. And how can people uh, stay in touch with you?
2: Go to asklynn.org, submit your inquiry, wait for an immediate reply. I do reply personally, uh, but there are all kinds of classes, everything from how to end the spending addiction in the 21 days to financial freedom, how to start a home-based business, how to invest in the stock market, uh, there are classes on uh, how to trademark your business. Uh, there are legal classes. So, anything that you want to know about money and how to improve your life personally, spiritually, and financially, go to askland.org.
1: Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you. And we look forward to talking to you again.
2: I look forward to coming back. Please bring me back.
0: <laughs> Thank promise. you. promise. So I will. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Lynn Richardson. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Connect with Lynn Richardson at NewWealthUniversity.net. And don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at WaymakerJournal.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.